Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 280, Have Yourself an Incarnation-Free Christmas. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm not going to get into this old argument about whether or not Christians should celebrate Christmas. Most Christians do, and I have addressed this before in podcast number 67 called, Is Christmas a Pagan Holiday? So tune into that if you're interested in that whole argument. I'm releasing this episode on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23rd, 2019. If you do celebrate Christmas, let me say to you, Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, that is absolutely fine with me. Definitely follow your own conscience and your best understanding of God's will as revealed in Scripture. A lot of people don't know this, but before the 20th century, quite a few Protestants considered Christmas to be a piece of mainstream Christian tradition that was better dispensed with. Surely there's nothing obligatory here for a Christian. So it's fine with me if you don't have any sort of Christmas at all. But if you're going to have one, in this episode, I will suggest that you should have an incarnation-free Christmas. Like the authors of the Gospel according to Matthew and the Gospel according to Luke. But before we get into Matthew and Luke, let me ask, what are your great-great-grandchildren doing right now? Maybe there are a few of you in the audience who are blessed to actually have great-great-grandchildren. But to the rest of you, let me ask, what are your great-great-grandchildren doing right now? The answer, I take it, is nothing. My great-great-grandchildren right now, they're not doing anything at all. And why is that the right answer? That's the right answer because they don't exist. And don't imagine that as some kind of shadowy sort of half-existence or something like that. No, there are currently no such beings, nor have there ever been any beings who are the great-great-grandchildren of Dale Tuggy. And unless you're blessed to be very advanced in age and to have had children, you're going to be in the same boat as me. It's self-evident that things that don't exist at a certain time are not doing anything at that time. To do something, you have to exist, right? That's a strict prerequisite. I think the reason that most people will agree with the things I'm saying right now is that it's part of our God-given common sense that in the process of human reproduction, the offspring begins to exist. Now notice how modest my claim is. Some people, for pro-life reasons, would say, hey, obviously human life begins at conception. Maybe that's true. I'm not sure. Certainly, I don't think I existed before that point. So as time goes on and humans continue to reproduce, the number of humans that there have ever been is increasing. I hope you agree with me that that's common sense. Of course, the interesting thing is that not all cultures of the world stick with common sense. So there are people that you can find in various religions, at least the philosophical ones, who will deny that there's any objective difference between right and wrong. You can find people, particularly in Hinduism and Buddhism, who deny that the world you see around you is real. 
They say it's an illusion produced by ignorance. Traditionally, most Buddhists deny that there is any individual self. It seems like you exist, but in a sense you don't. So yes, there are cultures in the world which deny that in the process of human reproduction, the offspring somewhere in there comes to exist. Whether it's at conception, or a little bit after, or midway through the pregnancy, or when they're born, or whatever, but somewhere in there, there's a new thing coming into existence. Probably the most common scheme that results in denying this point of common sense is belief in reincarnation. Reincarnation is basically, to put it crudely, soul recycling. Every person is a soul, and this soul gets a string of different bodies and then goes through different careers, different human lives. And when you die, somehow your soul ends up in another body and you live another life. And then you die again, and somehow this process happens again. And maybe you can get out of it. You can go to Vishnu's realm or achieve union with the one or attain nirvana, etc. But anyway, there are cultures that assume that this is the plight of souls, that they're stuck in this system of the Buddhists would say rebirth. Sometimes also this is called a transmigration of souls. One of those ideologies which included reincarnation was Platonism. And so you can find some Greeks who believe in reincarnation. And if they believe in reincarnation and that the human person just is the soul, that those are numerically the same thing, then they would, for that reason, deny that in human reproduction, the offspring begins to exist. They would say, no, reproduction is just a matter of souls coming to be embodied again, or maybe in some cases for the first time. Now, the idea of incarnation doesn't, of course, require the doctrine of reincarnation, but the idea of incarnation does require that the man Jesus had a non-human part that existed before any of his human components. In fact, on most interpretations, Jesus will have formerly not been a man. The same person who is now human at a previous time wasn't human. Now, if you're a Bible-oriented evangelical, maybe you just talk about Jesus being God, and you don't worry too much about what that means. But for more traditional Christians and Christians who recite the traditional creeds, whether ancient, medieval, or modern, they are committed to an incarnation doctrine where there are two natures of Jesus. There's a human nature and a divine nature. And once upon a time, there was just a divine nature. And then, when Mary became pregnant, this involved the divine nature becoming mysteriously united with a human nature meaning a particular body and a particular soul. And that, they think, counts as that divine person becoming human, like truly human, not just an apparent human. That's problematic, but leave that aside for now. It's also part of small-c Catholic traditions to imagine that this moment of incarnation, where the eternal divine Son takes on a complete human nature, body and soul, they think that that is, in some sense, the key moment, or at least a key moment of salvation history. I see this as beginning with Irenaeus. If you look in the New Testament, what's significant about Jesus is his public ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension 
and then his current rule and reign over the body of Christ, and then in the future, his return to rule on the earth, those are the key plot points in Jesus' salvific career. Incarnation doesn't come into it. In my view, it's just not mentioned in the New Testament. But the point of this podcast is it's not mentioned in Matthew or in Luke, the books that feature accounts of the birth of Jesus. Now, this time of year, you have people waxing paradoxical about how Mary is changing God's diapers and how there's this baby running the universe while crying and, you know, needing some milk and things like this. In truth, people do enjoy paradox mongering, uh, throwing around seeming contradictions, you know, that it makes your mind give out. It makes you feel like you're onto some profound truth that's like beyond human language and human thought. And sometimes people will suggest that the idea of incarnation is just too weird for anybody to have made up. Now, if you think in broad terms, the idea of some sort of deity or divine person being born as a man is not exactly unheard of in the world's religions. So, for instance, in a lot of Buddhist literature, the Buddha has gone through a series of lives and he's enjoying bliss in his Tushita heaven, a particular you know, evil-free realm. And he notices how very dark and desperate things are down here. And so, moved by compassion, he decides to be born. And that's when the Buddha's mother becomes pregnant and has him. Another famous example is the Hindu deity Vishnu. Again, he's dwelling in his own particular heavenly realm, you know, free of any sort of trouble. But he notices that things are going badly down here on the earth, and somehow the bad guys, these are the mythical demons of Hindu literature, uh, the bad guys are running amok, things are going poorly, and he decides that he is going to descend and help. And so the deity Vishnu is born in some Hindu stories as the man Krishna. So in both cases, it seems that there's a heavenly blessed state of the one who comes down. They're moved by compassion for the plight of humans and they voluntarily choose to come down so that they can come down here and do some important things. In the Hindu version, uh, they would describe it as coming to have an avatar. And no, we're not talking about the stupid movie with the tall blue people in it. Okay, but what does this have to do with Jesus and with Christmas? Well, it's this. As we read the stories of Jesus' birth in the New Testament, we need to ask ourselves if we can find any similar elements, any similar plot points. We would expect someone who believes that Jesus is the incarnation of an eternal divine word or an eternal divine person to mention certain things. We would expect to see some kind of portrayal, any kind of portrayal of the before state, so to speak, the pre-human Jesus being on deck and ready to come down and be born as a human. We would expect to see some mention, any kind of mention, of this all-important transition from being not human to being a human. And we'd expect then to see some aftermath where we have a God-man or a divine baby or a single person with two natures or something like that. Some indication that this baby ain't a normal baby. And we're not just talking about having this 
amazing, super important calling of being God's Messiah. But yeah, this is a man, but it's also a God or a divine person. You have these in, for instance, the stories about the birth of the Buddha. He doesn't come out the normal way because that would defile him. And he takes seven steps and announces that he's there to save the world, basically. The young Krishna is doing miracles even as a baby. And so you realize, aha, this is, this is a divine and human figure. Okay, do we see this in the portrayal of Jesus' birth? We'd expect a believer in incarnation to have incarnation either before, during, or after, or more than one of those, as part of the story, right? And I think you should agree with this point, whatever your Christology is, because the point is not just based on examples from other religions. I throw those in too, just because the expectation is rather obvious. If you're one of the many who thinks that the New Testament teaches that Jesus became incarnate, You also think that the most relevant passages do mention a before stage, the transition, and the end stage where he's a God-man. These are the things that you think you detect, that you think you observe in the first chapter of the fourth gospel and in Philippians chapter 2. So let's just be consistent and see if we can find some of the same indications in these two books here. When the Trinity's podcast returns, With these questions in mind, we turn to the first chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew. two segments, I'm going to look briefly at the birth account in Matthew and at the birth account in Luke. I'm not going to go through all of it. They're really rich portions of the Gospels, particularly Luke's, but it's not to my purpose to give a complete exegesis of everything that's being claimed there and everything theologically and Christologically that's going on. I just wanted to look and see, are there incarnation elements there? If they're not there, it looks like there's a problem here for people who believe that the incarnation of Jesus is revealed in the New Testament. If you want a real knockdown, drag out exposition of these portions of these two Gospels, really, in my view, the go to book is The Birth of the Messiah, a commentary on the infancy narratives in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And this is by the eminent Roman Catholic. New Testament scholar Raymond E. Brown. This book first came out in 1977, but you want to get the updated edition from 1993. To give us some spoilers, he doesn't see pre-existence or incarnation in these Gospels. 
As a Roman Catholic, it doesn't bother him too much because he could always fall back on later church tradition. And also, he wants to say, like many readers, that you can find the deity of Christ, the preexistence of Christ, and even the incarnation in John, and maybe also in Paul. But rather than quote him, I think I just want to focus on some of the salient points. You might actually want to turn to Matthew here. Notice how Matthew introduces Jesus and how he starts the story of Jesus. He doesn't start in heaven, he starts on earth. He gives us a genealogy of Jesus, he says, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is a descendant of the patriarch Abraham and of the famous King David, according to this author. And we know, again, by common sense, that the ancestor exists before the descendant. And so then we know that David existed before Jesus and Abraham existed before Jesus. And therefore, Jesus did not always exist, much less exist before the creation of the world. He's telling us where the Messiah comes from, and he gives us a lineage, not a lineage going all the way back to the first human, but a lineage that starts with Abraham and goes on from there. Verse 18, we get around to the birth account, properly speaking, and it's really crystal clear that Mary and Joseph had not gotten together yet, as husband and wife do, and yet she's pregnant, and she hasn't been made pregnant by Joseph, but rather through the Holy Spirit which is a way of saying that God miraculously caused her to become pregnant. And there's no hint here of a sexual encounter or something like a sexual encounter, like is sometimes portrayed in pagan stories of gods taking human form and having relations with a human woman. You don't have any of that here. The husband, of course, is at first disturbed by this, but he decides he's going to break up without making a big deal out of it. But before he does this, An angel appears to him and says that she is pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. The angel says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And if you look in the footnote of your study Bible or the NRSV, it will tell you that the Greek Iesus is the form of Joshua or Yeshua, which in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. What a great name. Now the author interjects that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, which says that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or you might translate, God is with us. Right, this is how theophoric names work. In this ancient practice, you name your child after God, using some title or name of God, not because you think that kid is God, but just as a way to honor God. So yes, God is with us. The us there is the Jews, his chosen people. And God is coming to them, so to speak, through Jesus. He's coming as their Savior. As the angel said, he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph agrees to go along with his plan, takes Mary as his wife, but again, doesn't get together with her until after Jesus is born. So who is this Jesus? So now it's going to give us more detail about that, but what has it told us about Jesus so far? It's twice said that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. 
which is understood to be a human who has a special mission from God. And we also know he's a human because he's a descendant of Abraham and David, and because he has a mother. Chapter 2 mentions him being born in Bethlehem. He's visited by some magi who believe he's been born with this destiny to be the king of the Jews. They say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Or you could translate to do him homage. The homage you would give to a legitimate king. And to make a long story short, they manage to find the young Jesus and they do honor him and they present him with precious gifts. And then they go back to their own country, avoiding the evil King Herod. So it's pretty clear what they think Jesus is. He's born with this destiny of being a king, the king of Israel. They honor him as such. So the evil King Herod doesn't want to lose his kingdom or his lineage. And so just as the Pharaoh tried to get rid of Moses, so this king tries to get rid of the young Jesus, but his family escapes to Egypt. And the reason they know to do that is because an angel again appears to Joseph in a dream and tells them they need to flee from Israel and go to Egypt until it's safe to come back. And then after Herod's dead, they come back and they live in Nazareth. So that's it. That's the whole birth account in a nutshell, according to Matthew. It's very clear through the whole thing that Jesus is supposed to be a real baby, a real son, a real human being. A pretty extraordinary one because of the way his mother became pregnant, but not half God, not half man, seemingly not a God man. This idea doesn't pop up anywhere in the narrative, right? But the big point is that this is the Messiah. This is the one who's destined to be the King of Israel. The birth of this one shows us that God is still with us. God is sending his chosen people, their chosen savior. Now, do we see in this narrative anywhere any mention of the pre-human Jesus? We don't, right? There's no portrayal of him being, so to speak, on deck, you know, being up in heaven. Okay, it's time for me to leave now. I, I see the time is right for a savior. Things are getting bad down there. I need to go. No scene like that, right? No mention of any state like that. No mention that he's motivated by compassion or an, okay, now he's finally received his marching orders and he's going to do it. He's going to finally become human. Nope, there's a miraculous pregnancy and then there's the baby that's born. Very special baby indeed. Okay, so there's no before in an incarnational sense. What about the big transition? Taking on a complete human nature, body and soul, or even just becoming flesh, any kind of transition from non-human to human, or even just from not being embodied to being embodied. Even more vaguely, just adding a nature, adding something to his deity, with or without taking on any typically human limitations. I mean, there just is no transition, right? Except the transition from being a fetus to being a baby. There's that transition. But there's not a transition from not being human to being human. Wow, that's kind of a whopping bunch of omissions if this writer believes that Jesus became incarnate for our sakes. What about an indication that this baby is a God-man or a divine baby or a single person with two natures? I mean, it's not there, right? His parents don't say, aha, this is God. Awesome. This is the creator of the universe here. 
there's no scene like that. The Magi, they do have some surprising special knowledge about him. And what that is, is that he's destined to be the king of the Jews. And so they, quote, worship him. But yeah, in the way that an ancient person, quote, worships a king, they do homage to him. They pay their proper honors to him as a true king. And the author, the narrator, never comes in and says, and little did they know that he was much, much more than a king. He was God in human form. You wouldn't think, by the way, that you could kill a God-man, because by being God, he would be essentially immortal. But the whole narrative here assumes that the baby Jesus was under threat, and that's why his family had to flee. There's no hint that, you know, it was only the human part that was under threat or something like that. It's no, this child, they're threatening his life. You've got to escape. They do escape. They come back and he's raised in Nazareth. Okay, so when we look for the telltale elements of anything remotely resembling incarnation, we come up with a big fat zero. Nothing. It's just not there, which seems to be pretty good evidence that the author doesn't believe that. What does he believe? Well, we assume that as a Jew, he doesn't believe in reincarnation. There probably were some Jews who believed in reincarnation. If they were very Hellenized, very impressed with the ideas of someone like Plato, then they might believe in it. But there's no hint of that here, right? So then we have to charitably assume that this author has his God-given common sense in this respect. And so he seems to assume that, look, this is the genesis of Jesus. This is where he comes from. He comes from this important Jewish lineage. And as with any human, the assumption is that somewhere in the process of reproduction, that's when he starts to exist. And that perfectly well explains why there's no mention of an earlier pre-human portion of his career. So if we ask, is there anything in this account that seems to indicate that the author assumes the falsity of incarnation theory the answer is yes, because there's a miraculous conception, but it's still a conception. And then there's the rest of the reproductive process. There's a fetal stage and there's a baby stage. And yeah, that's the start of Jesus's career, right? Because he's a real human. Here he's called a child, a son. So he's not anywhere in this narrative refuting the idea of incarnation, he doesn't have to. It's not an issue. But I think we can see that he's assuming the falsity of any incarnation theory. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we'll take a look at Luke chapter 1.
Again, the first three chapters of Luke are very rich. We could do a whole series of podcasts, probably do four or five of them about what's going on in these chapters. But I'm just going to hone in on what it is we're looking for when we're asking ourselves, do these authors believe in incarnation? So deep into chapter one, after it discusses the pregnancy of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, here we have an angelic visit to Mary, describing her as a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The angel says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Who's the Lord there? Obviously enough, it's the Lord God. We'll see that very phrase in a second. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. That's the Lord mentioned before. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now just pause right there. Pretty obviously the author does not think the baby is God. God is going to give her a son, and this son will be a descendant of David and will be a king who reigns forever, you know, under God. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, it might surprise you to learn that some modern scholars deny that there is any idea of miraculous virginal conception here. And the reason they say that is because there's no explicit statement by the author that Mary did not get together with Joseph until after the birth of Jesus. Raymond Brown does a good job addressing this in his commentary. I think that's obviously wrong, despite this bold new interpretation. What's suggested here is that just as Elizabeth has a miraculous pregnancy in that she's going to become pregnant even though she's too old to be fertile, Uh, so also Mary will be pregnant despite her virginity. So I think that's clear enough. And also it says in verse 35 that therefore the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He'll be called the Son of God, it seems to be saying, because it was God who made his mother pregnant. How'd he do that? Not by some kind of physical, sexual process, but rather God's Spirit will act within her. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's a Semitic-flavored statement following the Semitic habit of saying the same thing in two different ways. So that's equating the Holy Spirit with the power of the Most High. So God will exercise His omnipotence, basically, and as a result, Mary will be pregnant. Amazing stupendous. Elsewhere in the first three chapters, we find out that this is God's Messiah. 
But again, I'm just going to focus on a few key elements here. After the baby Jesus is presented in the temple and has an interesting encounter with the prophets Simeon and Anna, verse 40 of chapter 2 says, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And then it tells the story about Jesus getting separated from his family on a Jerusalem trip, and they find him discussing fine points of the law with scholars of the Jewish scriptures. And after that, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. So, this isn't God, right? The grace of God was on him. He enjoys God's favor. God doesn't need grace from God. God doesn't need favor from God. Also, God, understood in the monotheistic sense, does not grow up and become strong and does not grow in wisdom and in stature. But this guy does, because he's a child, it says, a human being. Again, the whole thing presupposes that he's a real human being. Let's just ask ourselves then, does it mention Jesus' pre-human existence? Do you find him in heaven on deck? Does he you know, receive orders from the Father or find some motive to come down? Okay, now it's time to go. I'm going to go down there. No. There were some early interpreters who were really kind of desperate to find incarnation here, and they thought that the Holy Spirit was the Logos of John 1. And so when it says the Holy Spirit will come on you, they said, okay, that's, that's the pre-human Jesus coming down into Mary. No, but that's, that's not right. Basically, no modern interpreter thinks that that's a correct interpretation of Luke one thirty-five. So how about a portrayal of the big transition, the transition from non-human to human? It's not there. Now he goes from being a baby to being a boy, and he goes from being a fetus to being a baby. But what happens before that? Well, God causes his mother to be pregnant with him. Yeah, okay, but what happened before that? Well, look, we don't believe in reincarnation, right? Uh, there's no mention of any pre-human portion of Jesus's career. So we presume that because there was a reproductive process here, that Jesus came to exist somewhere in there, either at conception or plausibly maybe a little after conception. Just pick one. This is the account of a Christian who believes that Jesus is God's Messiah and who believes that Jesus did not have a human father. He believes that Jesus resulted from God miraculously causing Jesus' mother Mary to become pregnant. And this same author is assuming that, yeah, that's the start of Jesus' career right there. You might say, look, a gospel author doesn't have to mention everything, right? John and Mark don't have birth accounts. Well, that's right. Gospel authors don't have to mention everything. But if you're going to tell us where Jesus came from, why would you just include the very recent portion of Jesus' career when he was human? Certainly, Trinitarians have been very concerned to let us know that Jesus existed before the creation of the world, maybe even that he existed in timeless eternity. Why don't you see that here? Well. We have to assume that the author here has common sense, and he believes that reproduction involves increasing the number of humans that there have been. 
And the great New Testament scholar, Dr. Raymond Brown, makes a very interesting point about Luke 1.35, the last portion of it. He translates it as the angel saying, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy dash son of God. And he makes the point that to say that someone will be called something is just the same as saying that that person will be that thing. So when he says that the child to be born will be called holy, he's saying that that child will be holy. That seems to presuppose that the same one is not currently holy, but he's going to be. Right, this is all consistent with that child, that same self, not existing yet, which is what we should think because Mary's not pregnant yet. And there's no hint here of a disembodied being waiting in the wings, just waiting to come into her womb, waiting, as it were, to fly down and take on a complete human nature, body and soul. So no, there doesn't seem to be any portrayal of a big transition. This author doesn't say that a pre-existing divine person became flesh, became embodied, gained a human nature, assumed a human nature, entered into a mysterious union with a human nature, or just added something to his divine nature. It's just not there. What is there? A young man, a baby, a fetus, and a miraculous pregnancy. So presumably, this is where Jesus comes from. So he's finally born in chapter 2. You have the famous scene where an angel appears to the shepherds and says to them that today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. And that baby is God, the Lord God Almighty. No, actually, he didn't say that last part. The multitude of angels appears and praises God for what's occurring. I mean, it's assumed here again that the Messiah, the Lord, Christ the Lord, is someone other than God. They then follow the law of Moses and have Jesus circumcised, and they present him to the Lord, that is to say, the Lord God, in the temple, and they offer their required sacrifice and so on. Again, is there anything in the narrative which suggests that the author assumes something inconsistent with incarnation theory? Yes, there is. He seems to assume, like you and I, that new humans come into existence somewhere in the reproductive process. And this little one is not God, but the Son of God, and God's Christ, his Messiah, and he grows up and gets bigger and stronger and enjoys the grace of God and the favor of God. Wow, the hand of God is really in this whole situation, right? but not in the way that people imagine, where God says, I need to get born now, or I'm going to send my son to take on a complete human nature to be born, because there has to be an incarnation for salvation to occur. Atonement, in some sense, requires a union between divinity and humanity. No reason to think that the author of this gospel thinks that. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Choices, choices, choices.
And now again, I've chosen not to go into all the gory exegetical details of these portions of Matthew and Luke, because I think what's really needed is some careful reflection on what's being said and what's not being said and why. And one thing I need to do is to help you to see that a certain standard retort that apologists have really isn't to the point, and it really doesn't get us very far. People will say, just because these two authors don't mention Jesus's incarnation, it doesn't follow that they don't believe in Jesus's incarnation. That is true, but it's really a trivial kind of point. And the key word there is follow. Yes, because these authors don't mention Jesus's incarnation, they're not mentioning that doesn't logically imply that they don't believe it. It's consistent to imagine that they believe in the incarnation of Jesus, that a divine person became also human, and yet they don't mention it or really give any hint of it in their respective accounts of Jesus's birth. So yeah, that's right, but that's not a very important point. The reason it's not very important is it still seems unlikely that they would write a fairly long origin story for Jesus without mentioning his incarnation if they believed in his incarnation. And because that seems unlikely, then what we're seeing here is evidence against their being committed to some sort of incarnation Christology. And it's fairly strong evidence at that. The more we'd expect them to mention such an important happening, the more significant it is when we find them not doing that, and they really don't mention it. We need to set aside partisan passions here, attachment to traditional Catholic speculations as against, quote, liberal theology or, quote, mere man Christologies. We need to think about the big New Testament picture here. So I'm going to explain now an inconsistent triad. These are three claims that, just according to logic, we know they can't all be true. And I did something similar way back in Trinity's podcast 128 called Ehrman and Bird on How Jesus Became God, Part 1. That was a different triad than this one, but what I was doing was similar there. So consider these three claims, and these are on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Claim number one. The New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God. That's something it looks like you should be committed to if you believe in inerrancy. But even if you don't believe in inerrancy, just if you believe that the New Testament Gospels contain divine revelation about the Son of God, then you would expect that, at least in their core claims, they would agree. Maybe not in all the details and the sequences and so on. But yeah, for instance... They should agree about whether Jesus is God incarnate. Okay, but just suppose you go along with me on that one. Second claim, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. That seems true, right? Now, we haven't looked at Mark, but take my word for it, it's not in Mark either. There is no birth account in Mark. And really, there's not anything in Mark that sounds like Jesus voluntarily assuming a complete human nature. The same is true of the Gospels that have birth accounts, Matthew and Luke. It's just not there. Okay, and then the third claim, John teaches that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. Now, this is not an argument where one and two are premises and three is the conclusion. No, these are just three claims such that you can't accept all of them. 
Right, so 1 and 2 imply that 3 is false. What if he took 1 and 3 and denied 2? The New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God, and John teaches incarnation. So then you'd have to deny that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach incarnation. Right, what's the last option? You could go with 2 and 3 and deny 1. So if you agree that the first three Gospels don't teach incarnation, and you agree that John does teach incarnation, then it's false that the New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God. I mean, here's a way to put it crudely. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Christology seems, so to speak, too low for John, and John's Christology, as most people understand it, is too high to be consistent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Because, as commonly understood, John has incarnation and the deity of Christ, and it looks like Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. Now, some modern scholars, I have to tell you, they agree with that last strategy. They affirm two and three and deny one. So they just think the Gospels disagree in core claims about Jesus and God, and they say the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't teach incarnation, but yeah, John does. What a lot of evangelical scholars in recent times do is they basically twist Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They squeeze them as hard as they can to try to make them higher to match how they read John. I'm not going to go into all this very creative exegesis in this episode. That's a big subject. So basically what they're doing is they're denying too that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. That they, really, it's false that they don't teach that? In other words, they do teach? Matthew, Mark, and Luke do teach that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us? Well, you've got quite an imagination there. I mean, you've really got to flog the text hard to try to get that drop of blood out of that stone. The right way, in my considered opinion, is to affirm one and two and deny three. So I deny that John teaches that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. The only thing that sounds like that is the prologue, really. And I think that is better understood as not implying the pre-human existence of this one we call Jesus. So the interesting thing about this inconsistent triad is a lot of Christians will find that they want to believe all three of those things. Right? So they do read John as teaching incarnation, but then when they honestly look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hmm, they don't seem to teach that. But they can also see why you should want to affirm one, just because you believe the Gospels are divine revelation. And in fact, there's really a, a higher price, even than I've mentioned so far, to denying one. The same people who think that John teaches pre-existence, the deity of Christ, and this incarnation transition, those same people think that Paul teaches that, okay? So then you have Paul in the 40s, 50s, and in some portion of the 60s teaching, supposedly, that Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. And then it looks like you have the synoptics written seemingly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and you don't see those claims there. Well, that's weird. And then you see them roaring back in John. That sequence, it goes beyond progressive revelation, Right, so God reveals this important truth of incarnation to Paul, but then somehow the authors of the first three Gospels never get the memo, but then it comes back with John. That's weird. I'm not saying it's obviously false or that it implies a contradiction, 
But look, the New Testament was written in a fairly short period of time in a fairly small circle of people who were in communication with one another. You would like to think, if it is possible to read them this way, that they had the basic story consistent. Either they believe in incarnation or they don't. Of course, facts are facts, and theory has to bow to fact. And it's obvious there are differences of emphasis between the different writers and differences of interest and so on. But this is a pretty big difference, right? This isn't comparable to the differences we normally observe between the Gospels and the sequence of events, the exact wording of various verbal interactions, and things like that. This would be more akin to, you know, one Gospel saying, oh, Jesus isn't the Messiah, and another Gospel saying, oh, yes, he is the Messiah. If he's a God-man, that's very, very important information. If he was around before the world began and created the world, that's very, very important information. And you would expect someone who believed those things to say those things, or at least imply them, gesture at them, etc. Now, one more kind of standard answer. Some people who are trained in theology and biblical studies will say, look, clearly you have the deity of Christ, clearly you have incarnation, but yeah, they don't have all the carefully, wonderfully worked out technical terminology and fine distinctions that later generations had. And so they might suggest, look, you're cheating by making the second claim so specific. The way I put it was, the first three Gospels don't teach that the pre-human Jesus voluntarily assumed a complete human nature in order to save us. Yeah, you can't say assumed uh, complete human nature and stuff like that. Okay, look, I'm not cheating. This definition is what you're committed to if you're a believer in creedal incarnation Christology. If it's the words that you're choking over, let's change the words. So one would stay the same. New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God. And let's change the second to... Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus became human while remaining divine in order to save us. In the third claim, John teaches that Jesus became human while remaining divine in order to save us. So I've stripped the idea of incarnation down to the bare bones. Jesus has to be divine without being human. And then incarnation happens, and then he's divine and human. Right, so fine. Don't mention natures. Don't mention assumption. Don't mention body and soul. Fine. Yeah, but all the same points that we made about the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, they would still apply. These authors don't say that Jesus became human while remaining divine, like divine in the way that one God is divine. They could have if they wanted to. They could have gestured in that direction. They could have hinted, implied. They just don't, right? They give you the impression that this is a miraculously born baby. Well, to that, I say, amen. That's what I call an incarnation-free Christmas. I say, believe the stories. Try to harmonize them. It's not easy. But take them as good faith reports about what actually happened. And you can enjoy them to their very finest, most wonderful depths. You can get out of them everything that you as a Christian are supposed to get out of those stories. You can enjoy them for all their richness for all their Old Testament allusions, quotations, and references. And you can do it without getting into the morass that is incarnation theories. As they say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Incarnation, according to these authors, is not part of the reason for this season. 
Later Catholic tradition says so, I know, but later Catholic traditions are one thing and apostolic writings are another. As I reflect on them, it seems that out of those three propositions, a Christian has the least reason to agree with three. That's based on years of mulling over the gospel according to John. Does Paul, earlier than any of these gospel writings, go around teaching that Jesus became incarnate for our sake, and so that Jesus was a God-man? I don't think so. You can check out a blog post I did earlier in 2019 called A Reading of Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, if you want to see how I understand that famous passage. In brief, I think that passage is about who it says, the man Jesus. I don't think it's about a pre-human divine person graciously deciding to become human. As the song says, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. But what matters for a disciple is, what did the author of John mean when he wrote that? Again, Catholic traditions are one thing. Apostolic writing, understood in its first century context, is another. I know that if you are utterly convinced that John and the writings of Paul teach that Jesus is God incarnate, you're not going to be moved by what I've discussed in this podcast. You're going to say, I have no idea why Matthew and Luke don't talk about incarnation, why they don't depict any before, during, or after when it comes to incarnation. If that's your stance, fine. But the considerations in this podcast should make you ask yourself, Is there a way to read John and Paul as consistent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Could it be that when it comes to the origin of Jesus, what Matthew and Luke say is correct, and actually that's consistent with what John says, rightly understood? You should consider whether that's the case, maybe even hope that that's the case. Of course, if it is, you're going to have to find interpretations of the alleged incarnation and pre-existence passages in Paul and in the fourth gospel, which actually don't involve anything like incarnation. I think this can be done, and this is why I hold to what's nowadays called a biblical Unitarian Christology. When I sing, O come let us adore him, I'm talking about the Son of Mary, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. There's only one person who goes by those names and titles in the New Testament, and that person is a real man. He's not the Lord God, but he is Christ the Lord. This week's thinking music has been the track O Come All Ye Faithful by the Canterbury Choir, recorded in 1947. Won't you sing along with me now?
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.